Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing, The Dangers of Network Neutrality Regulation. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute and your host for today's program. Before we get started, I wanted to bring your attention very quickly to the Cato Handbook on Policy, which is our comprehensive guide to what our scholars think should be done about policies ranging from foreign policy to taxation to energy and environment, civil liberties and everything in between. Um, this one actually came out in 2005, and we have a version that's coming out early next month, now called the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Um, so I want to make you aware of that. And uh, when it comes out, we'll get a copy to each congressional office, and uh, otherwise you can go on cato.org and uh, purchase a copy there. So, turning to today's program, uh, the dangers of network neutrality regulation. Uh, when I first came to DC, I was interested in energy policy. And as most of you probably know, the Energy and Commerce Committee is the one that has jurisdiction over both energy and net neutrality. And um, whenever they would do hearings on net neutrality or sorts of telecom and internet sorts of things, I was like, well, why are they doing this? They should be focused on energy policy, because that's what I care about. Um, but then I ended up working for energy companies, and I was like, whoa, I don't want them to talk about energy. And so it was welcome when they actually talked about net neutrality. It was kind of a distraction. It was nice. And uh, now that I'm with Cato, I would rather that they kept their hearings focused on uh, repealing uh, harmful regulations, cutting unnecessary spending, and just generally removing barriers to letting the private sector figure out uh, solutions to whatever pressing social problems there might be, if only. So anyway, um, our first speaker today is Timothy B. Lee. He is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. He's a PhD student in computer science and an affiliate of the Center for Information Technology Policy, Princeton University. He has written extensively about copyright and patent law, civil liberties, online privacy, and of course, network neutrality regulation. His writings have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, Slate, and Reason Magazine. He is a regular contributor to Ars Technica, a popular technology news site, and to the widely read Tech Dirt blog. From 2005 to 2007, while on the staff of the St. Louis-based Show Me Institute, Lee documented the rampant abuse of eminent domain in Missouri. And he is also a graduate of the University of Minnesota. Timothy Lee. Thanks, Kurt. Um, so my, my topic is the uh, dangers of network neutrality regulation. And I really want to do two, uh, three things. Um, the first is uh, network neutrality is a fairly confusing, uh, complicated subject, so I want to start by just talking about the basics of uh, what net neutrality is and, and why people think it's important. Um, secondly, uh, I want to uh, move on and talk about uh, whether network neutrality is in danger. I think that, um, uh, that there's been a lot of uh, talk about the dangers of network neutrality, but I think there hasn't been enough attention to whether, in fact, those dangers are realistic. And then finally, I want to talk about the um, the problem of unintended consequences. Um, so given the, the title of my talk is The Danger of Network Neutrality Regulation, um, you might be a little bit surprised by this first slide. Um, there are a lot of uh, opponents of network neutrality regulation who, who have no use for the concept of network neutrality and think we'd be better off without it. Um, I'm not one of those people. I think that the um, arguments for network neutrality as a um, technical principle, as, as a uh, description of the way the internet works, uh, is very important. Um, I'm more skeptical about the idea that uh, network neutrality needs to be uh, defended using um, government regulation. So uh, to start at the very beginning, um, what is network neutrality? I think the best way to 
I get a handle on that is to start by talking about what about the sort of opposite of uh, network neutrality. So in the 20th century, um, for most of the 20th century, the uh, nation's telephone network was run by uh, Ma Bell, uh, also called AT&T. Um, it was a, a regulated monopoly, and uh, there were two important characteristics of the uh, Ma Bell network for our purposes. It was a centralized network, and it was special purpose. So um, when you, uh, in say 1950, when you wanted a, uh, a telephone, you would call up Ma Bell, and they would come and give you a telephone. Um, you couldn't own the telephone. The, the phone company owned the telephone and you rented it. And you had very little control, very little option for what functions the telephone had. Um, you pretty much uh, took what the, what the phone company gave you. Um, so that's the centralized aspect of it. The AT&T really made decisions about what could be attached to the network and what you could do with it. Um, the other characteristics, it was, it was specialized. It was uh, optimized for a voice um, until, uh, for in 1950, for example, there was no uh, good way to transmit um, data or video or um, other kinds of information other than voice. Um, so 19, in 1969, um, a government research agency called ARPA funded uh, the creation of a, a network that was built on what was a, then a radically new uh, concept. This is the, uh, an early map of the ARPANET, which in the 1970s was a uh, government research network. And the ARPANET was, was the opposite of everything we were just talking about with the, um, the traditional telephone network. Whereas uh, the traditional telephone network was centralized and uh, special purpose, uh, the ARPANET was decentralized and uh, general purpose. So this is an interface message processor. Um, in the 60s, computers were very slow, and so you needed a um, separate computer just to handle all the, uh, the work required to be part of the network. And the interesting <coughs> thing about the IMPs is that they didn't know anything about the content of the data that they were transmitting. They would get, they'd be connected to a computer at some research lab, and they would get strings of ones and zeros and transmit it to the destination. Um, and it would be the, the job of the computer at the other end to figure out what to do with that data. It didn't know if it was an email or a, a file or, or some other um, kind of transmission. Um, and some people have derided this as a, a quote unquote dumb network that, that would be uh, better to do without. But there are important advantages to building a network this way. Um, and here are two, two examples. Um, in the upper left, we have Ray Tomlinson. Um, he was the inventor of email at the time, um, in the early 1970s. He was an employee of um, the company that was managing the ARPANET. And um, the ARPANET had been designed for the, uh, two purposes. The, the designers really uh, had uh, two applications in mind. One was file transfers, and the other was uh, remote login to computers, and Tomlinson realized that um, people would like to be able to send messages to, uh, to each other, and so he created the first email program. Now, the interesting thing about this is Tomlinson didn't have to go to his boss and say, hey, you know, we should upgrade the ARPANET to support email. We should uh, you know, add, add this extra function to the network. Um, all he had to do was he had to write the software required to send and receive emails for his computer. He had to send that software to the people he wanted to exchange messages with, and because of the way the network worked, was designed, um, this just worked um, without any need for uh, the help or even the permission of the people who ran the network. Um, you can tell the same story about the gentleman in the lower right. That's Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the World Wide Web. Um, and again, it's, it's kind of an amazing story. He was a researcher at the European Research Lab CERN. And um, he, it was just him and a couple of his um, colleagues that created the first web server and the first web browser. And once again, they didn't have to go to the people that ran the internet at the time and say, hey, I've got this new uh, web application. Is it OK if I, um, you know, run this on, on your network. Um, because of the way the internet worked, uh, they simply had to write uh, software, put it on the endpoints, and um, it would work automatically. Um, and so if we take this story to the present day, 
Um, there's lots of other examples um, in this same vein. Um, so we've got uh, Skype, which is an internet telephone um, application. You've got YouTube, which is internet video, um, and so forth. These are all applications that were dreamed up by um, various entrepreneurs, um, and none of them had to go to AT&T or Comcast or any of these other companies and say, hey, is it okay if, with you if I uh, deploy this? Could you please add this functionality to the network? Um, because we have a, a, a neutral um, network, uh, it's possible to just um, to, to just write the software and deploy it without um, any sort of centralized uh, coordination. And so this is what people are really talking about when they, they talk about network neutrality. This idea that you don't need um, the permission, anybody's permission to innovate, um, that you have uh, this, this open network that is equally available and usable to um, any, any applications. Um, so, so that's why I think that that's, that's what network neutrality is and why I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good thing. The next question, though, and what I think is not asked as much as it should be, is is network neutrality in danger? Um, there, there's a, a widespread, and it would, I would argue that there's not, and there's a widespread um, assumption uh, on both sides of the network neutrality debate that the, the large companies that own the internet backbone could, if they want to, transform the internet into a proprietary network, like the telephone network, where only approved devices or applications are allowed, where um, you have to pay special fees to do certain kinds of uh, traffic and so forth. Um, and probably the classic uh, discussion of this or, uh, is this quote from Ed Whitaker, who at the time was the CEO of uh, SBC. He has since retired, and SBC has since changed his name to AT&T. But uh, Whitaker was talking about uh, website operators like Google and Yahoo and so forth. And, and he said that, now, what they would like to do is use my pipes for free, but I ain't going to let them do that because we have spent this capital and we have to have a return on it. So there's going to have to be some mechanism for these people to, who use these pipes to pay for the portion they're using. Um, now, I, I think when, when Whitaker said this and when a lot of people talk about um, network neutrality, they have a, a model of the Internet that looks something like this. Um, and I want to thank Jerry. I, I borrowed some of his slides for this, so the, the uh, graphics are uh, to his credit. So this, this is a basic... Um, model of the way the, the um, internet works, um, that you've got a uh, bunch of houses at the bottom that are AT&T's customers, you've got AT&T which runs the network, and then you've got Google. And from, from Whitaker's perspective, Google's free riding because Google doesn't pay a cent to AT&T. Um, all these houses have to pay to, to get into AT&T's network, but Google doesn't, and, and in Whitaker's view that's unfair. Um, the problem with this view is that this isn't actually um, how the internet's structured. Um, this is a, still a very oversimplified but more um, accurate depiction of what the internet looks like. And, and the important difference is that you've got not just one cloud that's AT&T, but you've got several different um, clouds. And those represent what are called tier one um, backbone providers. There's about nine of them. And um, they all operate uh, large global networks that, um, that lots and lots of different people use. And what's important about them is that, that the way the market has evolved, um, these networks are all roughly the same size. And so rather than trying to meter traffic between them, and have uh, one network pay the other, they, they engage in what's called settlement-free peering, where um, if two networks are roughly the same size as these largest networks are, um, they simply swap traffic um, and, and, uh, and call it a wash in terms of payment. And the reason that's important is that um, AT&T doesn't really have, doesn't have a direct contractual relationship with Google, and Google isn't free-riding off of AT&T's infrastructure. It is paying another, um, another infrastructure provider uh, for the ability to get to that to that peering point. So the, the model is that, that everyone on the internet 
pays to get to sort of the middle of the internet, and then at the middle, the different networks um, exchange uh, exchange traffic without without paying each other. Now, the the fears that people have, uh, one of the fears is that um, even though Google is in fact paying uh, its fair share, um, AT and T might still try to extort money from Google. It might say, Google, if you um, if you don't pay up we're going to block our customers from getting to Google. Now, there's a couple of problems with this. In the first place, I don't know very many people who would want to sign up for an internet service that didn't include access to Google. Um, so, and that's a problem. And, and uh, so it's, it's not clear to me that, that AT&T could do this to Google, but you might think that they could do it to smaller companies. Um, and here you have a slightly different problem. Um, so here's a, a, a small sampling of the um, thousands and thousands of different web-based applications on the internet. And if, if um, AT&T wants to force um, these websites to pay money, um, it has a kind of chicken and egg problem because there's a kind of safety in numbers. These websites all know that any one of them is not very likely to be single out um, for uh, blocking or interference. But obviously, AT&T can't block them all because then um, it wouldn't have any internet access to solve. And so AT&T has kind of a chicken and egg problem where its threat to cut off um, companies is incredible until a certain number has started paying, but um, none of them have an incentive to pay until, uh, until the threat is credible. And so it's, it's simply not clear to me that, that AT&T has the um, ability that, that people on both sides of the internet of the debate seem to assume it does to uh, arbitrarily impose fees on people that are not their customers. Um, the, the system of interconnection I showed you a minute ago is, has been around for, for about a decade, more than a de decade now. It's very robust, and, and there's no good reason to think it will change. Um, so another, uh, another concern people have is with censorship. Um, the, the idea is that, say, maybe Comcast's CEO is pro-choice, and so he doesn't like pro-life websites, and he's going to start blocking uh, websites he doesn't agree with. And there's a couple of problems with this. Um, in the first place, obviously, you're going to have a lot of angry customers, and that's never good for business. But more important, you have to worry about what's called the Streisand effect. So this is a picture of Barbara Streisand's house. Um, a uh, environmentalist flew a helicopter along the um, California coastline. He was trying to uh, document um, soil erosion, but he, he made these pictures of the California coastline and put them on their website. And Barbara Seistand's house was among the, the uh, in the photographs, and she decided she didn't like having a picture of her house on the website, and so she sued this guy, um, seeking to have the photo taken down. And the result was that there was a ton of media coverage of this controversy. And far more people saw this photo after the lawsuit was, was filed than um, would have if she had simply left well enough alone. And this is a general principle. Another example of this was a couple of years ago, Verizon chose not to um, issue what's called a SMS short code to a pro-choice organization. Um, and this generated a ton of controversy. Um, I think probably raised the, the organization in question quite a bit of money. And within a week, the, the controversy um, was so intense that Verizon reversed its position and, and agreed to offer the position, so, uh, or the, the short code. So um, any attempt, if, if any company decided it wanted to, to squelch some particular view or tilt the discussion in one particular direction, um, the major effect of that is going to sort of shine a spotlight on whatever the thing they're trying to squelch is. And most likely, it's, it's going to backfire on them because it's going to, um, it's going to help promote the view rather than suppress it. So um, I, I think that the, the dangers to network neutrality are overrated. This is the, I make several other uh, arguments in my paper that I don't have time to go into, but the, um, 
it's, it's, it's difficult to pin down exactly what the danger to network neutrality is, and the specific scenarios that I've, I've talked about here I think are not very plausible. So, um, so I think network neutrality is good. I don't think that it's in, in nearly as much danger as people think, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. You might think, well, we might want to just enact regulation just to be on the safe side. Um, and the problem with that is, um, I think it's important to remember that regulation often comes with unintended consequences. And again, in the in interest of time, um, I talk about a number of examples of this in my, in my paper that I encourage you to check out. Um, but the, uh, probably my favorite example is uh, the United States' first modern regulatory agency, which is um, dealt with the railroads. So the, the, the railroads in the 19th century were the, the high-tech industry of its day. And the, the debates over the railroad industry were actually strikingly similar to some of the debates um, we're having today. So there was a lot of concerns that railroads would um, discriminate amongst their customers, that maybe um, large companies would get better deals than small companies. And so in 1887, um, Congress reacted to these uh, concerns by creating the Interstate Commerce Commission, which was the forerunner of a lot of our current regulatory agencies like the FCC and the FTC. Um, unfortunately, this, this story did not go as well as, as I think the, the people who created the ICC had in mind. Um, very quickly, the railroads figured out how to get uh, people friendly to, the, to their industry in positions of authority within the Interstate Commerce Commission. Um, initially, the ICC was basically a toothless organization, and over the course of the 20th century, it increasingly uh, was used by the railroad industry and later the trucking industry to limit competition um, and raise prices to the detriment of consumers. In fact, things got so bad that in um, 1970, a Ralph Nader group wrote a report saying that the ICC is primarily a form at which transportation interests divide up the national transportation market. Um, and Ralph Nader, not known for his, uh, his uh, support for deregulation, but he, he called for the abolition of the ICC. Um, now, my, my point with this is not to say that um, the exact same problems um, that crop up with the ICC will crop up with uh, network neutrality regulation, um, but the, as I document at some length in my paper, there, there are a number of examples of legislation that gets passed that was intended to um, accomplish their goal, and the, the actual results have often been to um, entrench incumbents in the industry um, in question and uh, increase red tape and so forth. And so given that there's relatively little danger to network neutrality, um, and given that it's proven very difficult to define clearly uh, what network neutrality is and who the regulations would apply to, um, it, it, it's counterproductive to uh, regulate. So uh, thank you for coming out. Um, I think we'll turn it over to Derek next. Thank you, Tim. Oh, after Jerry speaks, uh, we're actually going to open it up to questions and answers, so I just want to make you aware of that. Um, but Jerry Brito is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and he serves as an adjunct professor of law at George Mason University School of Law. His research interests include regulation, telecommunications policy, and government transparency. Mr. Brito earned his Juris Doctorate from George Mason University School of Law, where he was also managing editor of the Federal Circuit Bar Journal, and he obtained a BA in Political Science from Florida International University in Miami. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, I want to leave time for questions, so I'm going to race through my material, so bear with my very fast speaking. So what I'm going to do is give you a brief for uh, the history of net neutrality as an issue, uh, remarking on the legal and political aspects along the way. So the first thing is that, 
1990s, uh, early 2000s, uh, we saw the privatization and the commercialization of the internet. Now, previously to that, the internet, as Tim has said, has said uh, had been a military and research network. Um, and it was open to consumers at this time, thanks to uh, Al Gore and Gingrich and others. Um, and by the early 2000s, we had the first broadband networks. And with them came the first restrictions uh, that they placed on what their customers could do with the networks. And these are contractual restrictions that these networks were saying, when you sign up for an account with us, here is a contract, here are some restrictions. And these include restrictions on Wi-Fi. So if you sign up with us, you can't attach a Wi-Fi router. And these exist to this day, in some cases, uh, very difficult to enforce because who's going to come police uh, that you have a Wi-Fi router? Uh, restrictions on what applications you can use, like you can't uh, run a VPN using our network. So these first early restrictions sort of foreshadow the concerns that net neutrality activists would have uh, later on. Now, uh, Chairman Powell, Chairman Michael Powell of the FCC, seeing these concerns, um, wanted to address them. He gave a speech uh, in February of 2004 in which he announced what was called Four Freedoms, Four Freedoms of the Internet. And of course, this is sort of based on FDR's uh, Four Freedoms speech. And the freedoms that uh, Chairman Powell announced were, number one, freedom to access content, freedom to run uh, any application you like, and of course, you can think of a VPN here, freedom to attach devices, you can think of Wi-Fi, and number four, freedom to obtain service plan information. So at this point, uh, let me talk briefly about how networks have been regulated uh, until this point. Uh, you have common carrier telecommunication services that were regulated under Title II of the Communications Act. And this means that the FCC had authority uh, to regulate network management practices, regulate prices, require unbundling of a network, et cetera. Now, telephone is a common carrier service, and so it is regulated uh, under Title II of the Communications Act. And because DSL was a service of the telephone companies, it was treated as a telecommunications service and was therefore regulated under Title II. Now, cable, on the other hand, uh, is not regulated under Title II. And the cable broadband was classified by the FCC in 2002 as what's called an information service. And information services, unlike telecommunication services, are not regulated. So you had a bit uh, of an uneven playing field where you had DSL, telecommunication service, regulated, cable broadband, information service, not regulated. So you then had in 2005 uh, something that happened which we refer to as Madison River. Madison River case. And Madison River is a telephone company from North Carolina that also operated a broadband, a, cons a consumer broadband network. And what it did basically was that it blocked Vonage, the uh, voice over IP service. Uh, and of course, uh, the, re the reason to do this, uh, some would suggest, is well, Vonage is competing with their own telephone service, so we're going to block it. Uh, Michael Powell, seeing this, uh, uh, you know, wanted to keep. Uh, his pledge, his War Freedoms pledge, and he began an enforcement inquiry at the FCC. Uh, in the end, the Madison River signed a consent decree. It paid $15,000, and it promised never to block again. Now, Madison River is often used uh, to represent two propositions. Number one, that network neutrality violations can be addressed on a case-by-case -case basis. You can have general principles, and that on a case-by-case -case basis, uh, you can see a violation of those principles and address it. You don't need to have uh, rules about what exactly the networks can and can't do. And second is that the FCC has the authority to enforce general principles, right? Madison River did something that the FCC didn't like. They enforced, they did something, and they stopped. 
That principle is wrong, or, or that idea is wrong. First, the FCC was not enforcing any principle here, right? The four freedoms that Michael Powell announced were just part of a the speech. They were not uh, rules that were promulgated by the FCC, and they weren't uh, official FCC policy per se. They were just uh, uh, general ideas that we had. And secondly, the FCC actually never really brought an enforcement action against Madison River. Right? It simply started an investigation, and Madison River quickly settled. Uh, its promise to not block again was voluntary. Uh, uh, was voluntary to get to the settlement, and the $15,000 that it paid was a quote voluntary contribution to the treasury. So, <laughs> Matt, and that's, that's, that's that's the language. So Madison River really has no presidential value. You can't point to Madison River and say, well, this is the way it's done before, so it can be done again. The next stop on our tour is uh, in mid 2005, where you have a series of events, starting with the Brand X case uh, of Supreme Court. Now, as I said, uh, cable broadband had been um, classified by the FCC as an information service that was unregulated. And you had consumer groups, dial-up internet providers, <coughs> like AOL and others, who want repeal of this and wanted uh, information services to be regulated and to be required that they be unbundled. Right? And the Supreme Court, in the Brandex case, uh, affirmed that cable broadband was correctly classified as an information service by the FCC. So it sort of kept the uneven playing field. But not too, sh not too long after, in August of 2005, the FCC issued what was called a DSL order, and it reclassified DSL from telecommunication service to an information service, so it evened the playing field. Now both DSL and cable broadband are unregulated information services. During the proceeding, uh, a lot of uh, network neutrality proponents asked the FCC to find it. Maybe you're going to make them both information services, but let's put some network neutrality requirements on information services. And the FCC uh, expressly, in their order, declined to do that and issued separately what is called the Internet Policy Statement. And this is, this is important. We'll come back to it in a minute. And it said, at this point, we don't see really a need to, uh, to adopt net neutrality regulation. Uh, but we think these, the ideas of net neutrality, the way Tim said, are they're important. And so we're going to adopt this internet policy statement and they include, guess what, the four principles. They're sort of a modified version of the, of the four freedoms that uh, Michael Powell said. They were, number one, consumers are entitled to access the lawful internet content of their choice. Number two, consumers are entitled to run applications and services of their choice, subject to the needs of law enforcement. Number three, consumers are entitled to connect their choice of legal devices that do not harm the network. And number four, consumers are entitled to competition among network providers, application and service providers, and content. So, everything was peachy, um, uh, all broadband was unregulated, um, net neutrality was said was important, acknowledged as an important principle, but cut off to these principles. And then we have what Tim referred to as the infamous Ed Whitaker comment. And like Tim said, uh, Ed Whitaker uh, made his comment to Business Week where he said, um, you know, the internet, what did he say? He said there's going to have to be some mechanism for these internet status startups like Google and Yahoo to uh, reuse these pipes to pay for the portion that they're using. Tim's explaining why that, uh, why that matters. So there was a huge outcry as a result of this. SBC tried to backpedal a little bit, didn't really work. And this really launched, this was really the beginning of the grassroots effort for net neutrality regulation. And that continued through 2006. And we saw the formation of the Save the Internet Coalition, which uh, included many groups, including Free Press, PETA, American Library Association, Consumers Union, Common Cause, MoveOn.org, 
but also the Christian Coalition, Gun Owners of America, and also had corporate support from uh, Google, Amazon, and even initially uh, Microsoft. By the end of 2006, they had uh, put together a petition with over 1.5 million signatures demanding net neutrality regulation. So, as a result, Congress takes real no notice of this during 2006, and so we see the first legislative responses. And there have been several uh, bills, the most notable of which is probably Snow's Oregon, uh, which would have prohibited two things. First, the tiering of broadband through either um, sale of voice or video-oriented quality of service packages, but of course it excluded cable, even though cable is, cable television is really a, a video tier, and of course te telephone. The other thing we would have prohibited would be content or service-based blocking. Right, so blocking an entire service, like in the Madison River case, for example, or, or censorship, right? blocking for a particular uh, type of speech. So uh, Snow Dorgan was the most prominent bill, I would say. There are others, the Markey Bill, et cetera. Now, under pressure, uh, and seeing that Congress was serious about net neutrality, the FCC began its own inquiry in June of 2007, and it issued a notice of inquiry. So this is not a rulemaking. This is not a notice of rulemaking. It's not proposing any regulation. It's just simply saying, look, we see this is a big issue. We want to know if we should do something. So what can we do? Um, do we have authority, right? Can we enforce the policy statement? Um, if we have the authority to do that, if so, how do we do that, et cetera? And so there was a round of comments from the public, reply comments over several months, and then we haven't heard from the sense. Uh, this, we, we have not seen the report. And it's likely that we probably will never see this report. And the reason is largely because of what happened next, which is in October of 2007, you have what's beloved known as the Comcast per bubble. So what is the Comcast per bubble? Well, Comcast has been blocking the BitTorrent traffic. BitTorrent is a way to, um, it's, it's a file sharing application that allows you to share large files. Largely it's used to trade um, copyright content such as uh, movies, music, and, and games. Um, but it also has lots of legitimate uses. And the problem with, with BitTorrent is that a small percentage of Comcast customers were using a disproportionately huge amount of the network uh, and were therefore slowing down everybody else. Comcast decided to address this by blocking BitTorrent altogether. Now, there's some subtleties about how they do that technically. Um, I'm not going to get into it. I'll just say that they blocked uh, BitTorrent. Um, the AP breaks the story that Comcast is doing this. There's huge public outcry. Comcast at first unconvincingly uh, denies that it's doing anything. But you know, by March, Comcast is chastened and it changes its policy. And now they're using uh, a form of uh, bandwidth caps and among other things. Now around the same time, the FCC begins an inquiry into this block. And by August, of way after the sort of had dust had settled on this and Comcast stopped doing what it was doing. And, uh, you know, the, the public have been satisfied. Uh, in August, the SEC votes three to two to sanction Comcast, and it requires Comcast to disclose its past and present and future network management practices and prohibits the type of blocking that it had done. So this is a lot like Madison River, right? You had a broadband provider blocking the service. Uh, and like Madison River, you could arguably say that this is uh, a service that competes with Comcast's own cable. Um, a video service. Now, unlike Madison River here, we don't have a settlement, right? We have an enforcement action voted on by the commission. So what law or rule did the FCC 
enforce here? What, what authority do they have to, to, to stop Comcast, to, to find them? What do they actually find them? That they, they force them to stop what they were doing with the threat of a fine if they don't. Why the SEC here enforce its internet policy statement? Right? And the problem is, is that policy statements are not enforceable. Policy statements are a common tool of the FCC and of any other regulatory agencies, and they basically denote intent. It's when a commission doesn't want to go out and regulate, but they see that there's a problem in the industry that they regulate, and they say, look, guys, to the industry players, here's a policy statement of where we're thinking of going. And uh, if you don't conform to this, if you don't shape up, this is the sort of regulation that we're thinking of, uh, of applying. Um, and usually taking that cue, uh, industry players will, will fall in line. But policy statements really don't have any, uh, are not really enforceable. Now, why aren't they enforceable? Let me just talk briefly. Um, so, as you all might know, the way you make regulations is that you follow the requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act, right, which sets out how regulation is made. The type of rules that we all know when we talk about regulation, you know, agency rules, these are legislative rules. And these are enforceable, and uh, they require notice and comment, right? So when you want to make a rule, you're an agency, you publish the rule that uh, you want to put out in the Federal Register. And you say, this is a rule we're thinking of doing. The AP requires you to take comment from the public, requires you to take reply comments, consider those comments, and then put out, publish in the Federal Register your final rule. And then it becomes uh, effective shortly after that. And that's what we call a legislative rule. That's how agencies make rules. It's enforceable and it, and it requires notice and comment, uh, notice and comment procedure. Now, there are two types, or there are several, but I can, I can talk to you right now about two types of um, uh, actions that agencies can take that do not require uh, notice and comment. The first is when you have an interpretive rule. So this is enforceable, just like a legislative rule, but, it's, but it doesn't require notice and comment. An interpretive rule basically says it's only interpreting a rule that already exists, right? It's not modifying the substance of a rule that already exists. It's just, it's just uh, interpreting something about it, right? Maybe the color of something that they, that they had said. Uh, so it's, it really doesn't change the substance of what the rule that the industry faces. The other thing is policy statements, right? So policy statements do not require notice and comment, but they are not enforceable, right? Because policy statement, if it announces new substantive rules, would have to go through the notice and comment procedure in order to be enforceable. So that's the brief lesson on APA. So back to this. So for those reasons, I don't think that the policy statement is enforceable. And Comcast has uh, appealed. And so now Comcast is taking this to the D.C. Circuit, is appealing. And for this reason now, we can see how Folks on the Hill, all of you, probably are thinking, well, maybe the court will find that the FCC does have, have authority to regulate any travel. And if they do, we don't have to worry so much about uh, legislating. So since Congress has other things on its mind right now, uh, they're sort of waiting, waiting to see what happens uh, in this court case. The FCC, same thing. They're not going to pursue any more enforcement actions uh, until they can see what the outcome of the court case is. So we're sort of now uh, in the law. So, that is a short legislative history of net neutrality issue. But there are a few events that I didn't mention that are notable uh, that I want to go through briefly here. And these are not really uh, so much as, as straight up 
legislative or regulatory uh, attempts at getting net neutrality. We just sort of backdoor approaches. The first is the AT&T Bell South merger. So this is a deal that was announced uh, in uh, March of 2007, where AT&T and Bell South decided to merge. And in short order, the DOJ approved it, 18 state public utility commissions approved it, finding that there was no real uh, competition issue, right? AT&T uh, was concentrated mostly in the west and the north. Uh, Bell South, as the name suggests, was in the south and the east, really didn't overlap. The FCC, however, held it up for nine months. And the reason is that the proponents of net neutrality said, you should put as a condition of merger net neutrality restrictions. And they got their wish. Um, the merger filing went through when AT&T accepted that its network would be uh, restricted in what it could be done, right? So uh, specifically committed itself not to provide or to sell internet content, application, or service providers wireline broadband internet access service based on its source, ownership, or destination. Uh, so right now, we do have the AT&T network operating under a form of net neutrality regulation. And so this is really regulation through extortion, I think. Next, you have the 700 megahertz rules. And so this is uh, radio spectrum that uh, is being made available thanks to the digital television transition that we're seeing next month. And so now that the uh, television broadcasters are making uh, that spectrum, is available, and it, it was auctioned recently. And so the FCC had to decide what service rules to place on that spectrum. And again, many product proponents said, whatever you sell uh, should contain uh, open network requirements. And again, they got their wish. And for a 20 megahertz block, which is a sizable chunk of this valuable spectrum, uh, you do have basically net neutrality obligations imposed on that network as to what sort of devices you can attach, uh, as to what sort of applications you can run on a network that operates over that spectrum. And so Verizon won that spectrum in the auction, so they are sort of beholden to that. And finally, we have something that might happen in the future, and that's the stimulus. Um, we're going to have a, a very big stimulus package, as you all know, and that's going to go to infrastructure. Uh, broadband has been talked about as part of that next wave of infrastructure. And so it's a possibility that you, you could have um, the suggestion that stimulus cash be given only if the recipients agree to take on the travel. So that's something to keep uh, your eye out on. So thank you very much for the questions.